0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclib 200mg at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
1: Small Doses, self-help from the hip. Small Doses, we're talking that shit. Small Doses, and keeping it real. Small Doses, with me and me, Seals. So funky. <laughs> so small doses, folks. I feel very academically, well, African-American academically flexish. We, we already had Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly on the show. We got Kimberly Crenshaw coming Hi. up. And here we are with Ibram X. Kendi, who, if y'all don't know, is one of the foremost... How would you? What, what, what doctor? Sorry, doctor. I got to give you other doctors because you you you've done the things and it wasn't honorary. Because by the way, I don't believe in the do, in the honorary calling you doctor if <laughs> you give somebody the honorary doctorate. You know what I'm saying? Like you might want to have, like maybe your people in your house is calling you doctor, but like I'm not calling you doctor if they gave you honorary doctorate. I don't even care. Rest in peace, Maya Angelou. I'm not I'm not calling you Doctor Angelou. Like hey, <laughs> you didn't do you didn't do the paper. You didn't do the thesis. You didn't do the things. Uh, but how would you? refer to yourself in this space that you have really boxed out like Shaq and the paint in when it comes to <laughs> history, when it comes to cultural study, when it comes to African-American studies?
2: I just consider myself a scholar. I mean, I, I try not to, to think any more specifically than I think I study the history of racism and anti-racism, but I just try to understand myself as a as a scholar. I don't really necessarily conceive of myself as a as an activist, even though I'm I think many times active described in that way, largely because I think I have a pretty high bar for activists. Like for me, these are people who have a record of power and policy change, and they're actively seeking to you know, to create that. So I consider myself a scholar.
1: Well, if there were a Hollywood Walk of Fame for for scholars, you'd be on there. We would do a whole photo shoot with you by the star. (laughs) We'd all wear our dashikis that day. It would be a time. It would be a time. So your scholarship was brought to my attention with Stamp from the Beginning, which I think for a lot of people has become the foremost text on the history of race and racism, and the understanding of how it fits in the context of history, but also where it exists now. And of course, we, we you know, there's there's other texts that we have really had to lean into to expound upon that. Like thirteenth is one that comes to mind, right? Like the the work of uh, Melissa Harris Perry. Wait, no, no, not Melissa Harris Perry. It's uh, come on, it's three names. Why am I? Lacking right now. All right. Well, the prison industrial complex. Look it up. Yeah. You know the name. Why are you not gonna tell me the name?
2: I don't. It's wanna, Alexander, don't mess right? Anybody know? Oh, Michelle Alexander. Yes. Yeah, it's the Michelle Alexander.
1: Okay, yes. I got there, y'all. <laughs> you see, it's it's a lot of hip hop talk going on right now. So I'm sorting through like Nas, Ilmatic lyrics. I'm sorting through like a lot of of oh, history, man. and then got to get to like the real things. But when you see things like this, like I opened my phone today and I saw. Under Sarah Huckabee Sanders' new education reforms, Arkansas will no longer pay for students to take the AP African American Studies exam. In an email sent to school districts that offer the course, the course code for African American Studies has been deleted on the page where students can go to have AP exams paid for by the state. And so we see that... We are in like an active, so even though you, know, you don't refer to yourself as an activist, there are activists in the antithetical sense that are mm-hmm. creating policy change to absolutely, without any nuance, create erasure, disassociate themselves with reality, and also, just for what it's worth, use education as a weaponized tool for the oppression and suppression and discrimination of... Not just Black folks, but folks in general, right? So we're seeing it in real time. So when I look to you and I see your work, I say, okay, this is somebody who they're actively wanting to silence. This is this is somebody who is doing the thing that they want to stop. This is somebody who is unearthing. This is somebody who is elevating. This is somebody who is empowering us with tools for change. And they're like, get that shit out, shit out of here. here. So I want to start first with, this is an episode called Side Defensive Race. What drew you to this study? Because it's one thing to know you black. It's one thing to be about blackness. It's a whole other thing to decide. I'm going to dedicate myself to really unearthing and and contextualizing this in a real way for folks.
2: So I actually, I, I was initially interested in becoming a journalist. Like when I went to FAMU. And oh, I you're was, a rattler? Oh, no doubt. I strike.
1: Okay, we got a bison on strike. the other side of the camera. So, you know, he made a smug face.
2: All right, <laughs> bison. Uh, so... I wanted to be a journalist and by the end of my time at at the top HBCU in the country um <laughs> <laughs> uh I actually was I started out in sports and then started thinking about writing you know, being a journalist on on race and racism but when I graduated or when I was nearing graduation I didn't think just because I was Black, that I was an expert on, on Black people. So I felt I needed to get a master's in African-American studies. So I actually pursued one, you know, at Temple University. And so that's when, as a grad student, that's when you really get a sense of the life of the professor. And so I think I fell in love with that, that life. And, and But really, I think what drew me to it was, like I said, that assumption, just because I'm Black, just because I'm experienced racism, doesn't mean I'm an expert on blackness or black people or racism.
1: But even to that point, what did it awaken for you? The reason I say that is because I had the same notion, but there was a feeling that came from m- attaching myself to the rigor of learning and understanding more about, you know, not just where we're from, but the socioeconomic elements, the historical, the literature, et cetera. There was a like light that got turned on in doing that study that just wasn't there before.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, certainly that that light was feeling almost liberated. And and so I I felt the more I learned about racism, the more I began to recognize that all these ideas that, that people had sort of expressed about people like me were false the more that I realized those ideas were false, the more I realized there was nothing wrong with black people. The more I realized there was nothing wrong with black people, the more I realized there was nothing wrong with me. And the more I realized that, the more liberated I felt. And then I started to realize what was the problem, which were these, you know, structures and systems. And in many ways, the world opened up to me. Again, the sort of metaphor, to use your metaphor of light, it's sort of the world opened up to me. So now I could sort of see what was really holding Black people back. And it wasn't Black people.
1: We hear that narrative incessantly. Yeah. From other Black people, by the way. Because I tell you, if Ice Cube don't shut up, I'm just like, please, <laughs> you need to check yourself. You're wrecking yourself. But I, before we even go down that road, what is a misconception about race that you feel that we as black people have in historical context?
2: Oh man, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> we got time.
1: <laughs> we got time. I mean, what's the first one that comes to mind or what's one that you think is particularly damaging?
2: I think one that, the first one that came to mind was this notion that we we sold ourselves mm. uh, like in Africa. And the, the reason why it's it's false is because at the time in the 1600s to 1700s to 1800s, there was not this sort of conception of one people, right? There were different ethnic groups. And those different ethnic groups were typically capturing and selling other ethnic groups that were as different from them as the Europeans waiting on the coast. Mm. So there wasn't this conception that I'm selling my people. right? And, but that's one of the things we believe now, which I think not only causes African Americans to feel as if we were portrayed by continental Africans, but it also justifies, I think, many forms of division within our communities, that we can't trust each other because the the reason why we're here, the reason why we're in this predicament is because we sold ourselves.
1: I get so frustrated at the inability for folks to understand how history changes things. Like, just on a basic level. Like, we weren't all of us until we were forced to be all of us by all of them. Yeah. So we're here now, <laughs> you know? And in the now, we can move differently, and we, we need to, because there was a before, and now this is an after. When I see folks do the whole, you know, Black people... We don't know where we're from. That's one that's a doozy for me. We were Moors. We were kings. We were Indians. I'm like, okay, then we we were <laughs> Hebrews. I will tell you that my study doesn't go like that far, like my rigor, my academic rigor doesn't go that far back, but I would, but I know yours does. And so I would love if you could just provide us some context into where possibly some misperceptions lie in that framework as it relates to like what makes black people black people because i think oftentimes that language is used to undermine just the fact that we are a unique people right and it's like we were not enslaved it's like well no some of us were enslaved so i'd love if you can speak to that
2: well it's interesting because this sort of rhetoric this these things come out of this notion that we currently are like a downtrodden people that we're like we're not a strong people right now. So right. typically people say, oh, we once were.
0: Mm. Right. We
2: we we once were kings. So we can return to that. You know, we can return to being highly civilized. We can return to not being quote dangerous. We can return to being beautiful as if we're not beautiful and highly civilized right now. That make that's Africans not the, great again. <laughs> I mean that's basically yeah and you know it is the case that certainly before the Europeans arrived in Africa to initiate the transatlantic slave trade and or human trade in in the 1400s that in West Africa it was in the midst of these sort of major civilizations Ghana Mali and Songhai the
0: mm-hmm. the
2: Mali Empire Mansa Musa Mm-hmm. is is reportedly one of the wealthiest persons to ever lived. Mm-hmm. And there was so much gold in Mali that when they would draw maps of Mali and Europe, they would just put gold nuggets. I mean, it, it, that, all of that is the case, right? It is the case that when people would travel there, they would feel extremely safe, right? They reported, all of that is the case. but But we shouldn't say, okay, yeah, we were rich then, We had resources then, we were civilized then, we were safe then, and we're, quote, dangerous now, we're unintelligent now, we're lazy now. Because those second ideas were fed to us by the very people who who destroyed those civilizations. But then, even as our civilizations were destroyed through colonialism, through human trading, we were able to build them anew, (laughs) Uh, We were able to build them anew in the Americas. And and, and we, you know, despite our history, despite the trauma, despite the violence, we we never sort of lessened in our greatness.
1: Where did the concept of white supremacy originate? Wow.
2: So (laughs) I would root that the origins of white supremacy in transatlantic human trading. And so you're, you're talking about when Europeans started traveling along the Atlantic coast into West Africa and started enslaving all these different-looking peoples with different skin colors and from different nations with different languages and, and different cultures and, and, and claimed all those different peoples were one people— one inferior Black people that was worthy of enslavement. And then they simultaneously said that we, meaning us Europeans, are one people who are superior to these uncivilized people and who should, of course, reign supreme in the world. So the ideas of white supremacy justified, initially, human trading. And, And, you know, human trading, particularly the transatlantic human trading, really emerged in the 1440s, 1450s, 1460s. And by the 1650s, you, you you had the Portuguese, the Dutch, the British, the French, you know, all engaging in it. And, of course, the Spanish colonizing the Americas and, and bringing African people to the Americas, imagining that they were supreme to those African people as well as to the Native people that they were massacred.
3: Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy, Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: Okay, so first of all, I want to say this. I do not want this to be a scenario where I keep just asking you a question and then you answer the question. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Okay, so because... I say that because I think it's important that we are a lot more conversational about these things because we've reached a point where race as it is discussed in reality feels like it's in the ivory tower. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there's like a chasm. It's like, oh, there's races it's spoken about amongst like, man, these cops be coming for these niggas. You know, there's that. And then there's like the ivory tower conversation of... Well, in the 1450s, you know, like, and so, but in order for us, in my opinion, and, you know, let me know if you agree, in order for us to really challenge the really moment, the momentum around erasure that's coming at us, we have to close that chasm. Like, we have to find a way to get the conversation about the reality of this shit to be regular conversation, because... I feel like we only talk about the repercussions, but we don't talk about like the, the way that we got here. And so there's an expectation. I think a lot of Black folks that I hear, they have come to just accept that this is what it is. Um, and I think we got here because we don't talk enough about like, well, no, no, it was not always like this. <laughs> like we we don't have that concept. We like, And that's why they're trying so hard, I think, to, to silence things.
2: I think academics... Who are sitting in these ivory towers, you know, talk a lot about quote reaching or talking to regular folks about these these issues. Even though, for the most part, I think black academics are the most likely to be engaging with everyday folks on these issues. But it can even be a challenge for academics. And I, one of the things I, I see is, you know, I mentioned earlier. How I did not feel as if I was an expert on blackness or black people or racism, but I didn't necessarily say that I didn't know anything. <laughs> and so you 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 could have an academic who would say, Oh, these people don't know anything. Mm. And I think, do you think that could be like part of the the disconnect? Part of the disconnect.
1: I think that there's definitely, like, a value system based on knowledge. And we definitely oftentimes give a hierarchy to knowledge taken from a book versus knowledge taken from experience. And some of that is legit, right? Just in, like, the the effort, right? And it's just like, you're not just giving someone props for what they know, what they got from the book, but like props for the fact that you went and got the book. You went and got the book. You read the book. You talked about the book. You wrote a paper on the book. And now you notice, right? So there's like that part of it as well versus that, you know, you just woke up and you was like, I'm black today. What am I going to find out? And so there's something in that. But that chasm to me, we have seen over and over again. Like that's the old Negro, new Negro chasm, right? That's the... KRS-One the other day talking about the new generation of hip-hop is betraying the old generation of (laughs) hip-hop. You know, and it's like, I don't have the answer, but I do feel that there's this idea that if you have academy in your knowledge, that there's a more value to that. And I say that personally, like I went and got my master's at Columbia in African-American studies knowing that there were going to be people that would undermine what I say without it. Yeah, that's true. If I want to be out here talking, they're going to be like, ah. But then when I can be like, well, say that to Dr. Marable, rest in peace. Then it's like, oh, oh, I didn't know that you were doing (laughs) all that. You know? I didn't know you
2: were rolling with him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, squad. So I think that my... I'm really trying hard, Dr. Kendi, to bring things that seem out here down to, I don't don't even like the word down. I'm trying to...
2: Well, the word I use is clarify. Yeah. Because I don't think it's simplifying because that's like almost like people are stupid and people aren't stupid, right? Right. But clarify is almost like translate for, for folks. So folks already have their language, they have their experience, they have their knowledge. But they they, they may not know necessarily that language, right? Or or it being... So it's really about clarifying and using terminology
0: Mm -hmm. that
2: folks already understand. And, you know, the beauty about Black folks is we speak so metaphorically Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that it allows for a lot of room to talk about extremely complex stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: And and so for me, I'm just constantly, you know, how can I clarify for folks which is means i'm not losing a complexity no like, all the complexity is there and clearly yeah. through hip-hop we it demonstrates just how <laughs> just yeah. how we can how process complexity something yeah. can be yeah
1: i mean i had somebody tell me i wasn't a truth teller i was a truth translator yeah. and i was like "Ooh, maybe i'll get that in a name plate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of words um a lot of letters but Like when we talk about race now, I feel like there's such a concerted effort to really try to confuse people about what race actually is. You know, there's a lot of effort to really... I always come back to this word glamour from the show True Blood because that's what vampires would do to civilians. They would basically Jedi mind track them into letting them in. And considering that these people are trying to suck the life out of us, I feel like they are vampires and they are trying to gaslight us into not even understanding our own origins or even the realities that they have created for us, right? And so it's working. When we talk about just like where... Where would you say that the idea of race has shifted since, like, the Black Power movement of the 60s and 70s?
2: I mean, I don't know about you, but it it just seems to me that, so my parents were in in, in the Black Power movement. And at that time, particularly among Black people, there was a pretty significant awareness of the existence, the structural existence of racism. Yes. And so, like, you know, you could of course debate with black people whether racism is gonna end, but there was very few folks saying, you know, it doesn't exist. Exactly. Mm. And I think now, you know, I sort of as someone who writes history, I sort of take responsibility for this. I think we the sort of Jedi mind trick, the way in which people are manipulated is people are taught in 2023. To look for racism using the glasses of 1963, in other words, like racism is that metaphor, has,
1: y'all? You heard it. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> you
2: know, racism has changed, right? The way it operates today is very different than the way it operated in, in 1963. But if it's we're only amorphous. taught, you know, Jim Crow segregation, white only signs,
1: if we ain't being lynched, what's the problem?
2: Exactly. Only the by the way, hand. people are still being lynched. If we're taught that that's what racism is, and then we look around and we're like, hey, you know what? I can go into different restaurants. Like, yes. And, yep." but it's changed. And I, and I think it's important for people to get the glasses of today so they could really understand how it's operating. I think post-racial theory, in my estimation, it's the most sophisticated set of racist ideas ever created. And, you know, as somebody who studied... The
1: concept of post-racial theory, like, as it relates to, like, this whole when Obama was elected and yeah. it became like, oh, now this is post-racism and Tore yeah. want to write a book about post-racism and it made me not want to talk to him no more. You talking about, like, that type of stuff?
2: Yeah, like that racism is <laughs> yeah. over because one one Black dude moved into the White House, you know, with his Black family. So, because what that does is once you believe that racism no longer exists and you You live in a society Yeah, you stop fighting it but you you live in a society where it's still the case that black people are more likely to die from heart disease die from the police be incarcerated be impoverished and if that's not because of racism then it causes you as an individual to be like okay so what's wrong with black people so you come up with your own Mm. ideas by yourself instead of people force feeding them to you you come up with your own ideas to explain racial inequality. And that's just much more sophisticated because back in the day, they would say, oh, this is what's wrong with Black people. Now they're training people to figure out what's wrong with Black people themselves.
1: Which is a completely futile effort. Yeah. A mismanagement of energy and, <laughs> takes, and takes the onus off of them so exactly. they can continue to keep doing what they keep doing to Black people. Yeah. How did they become so good at this? Like, in your studies, where, in your studies, how did white people become so good at the strategy of oppression? Have we figured that out? I don't think black people, I don't think we're good at that, bro. Because they think- really, like, about it, about it. You know, I I, I gotta tell you, I, I low-key have a wonderment at the consistency across Europe... Right? So it's not even just like, well, them British. It's like, no, the Spaniards, the Belgians, (laughs) right? Like, the efficacy of their oppression on many climates, right? It's not even like, well, "Well, we we was good good at at this in Africa, Africa, but we we don't know how how to to do it in Mexico. Mexico. Like, the consistency and the efficacy of their oppressive manners is so prevalent that I find myself ever so often being like, this got to be supernatural. Are they the aliens? Because they're the only life on Earth that doesn't that the sun doesn't help. <laughs> you, yeah. I'm, like I'm telling you, like honestly, Dr. Candy, I'm so frustrated. I've been on this earth before. I very much believe that my spirit keeps coming back as like a check-in to see like where we at. And this time around, were,
2: what do you think you were the primary your previous life here? You ever since?
1: In my previous life here, I feel like I was a healer of some kind. I don't know if I was black, but I was a healer of some kind. And I was looking around like, this, this is, is some bullshit. bullshit. And then I feel like I keep coming back to be like, have we? What do we? Because I do feel like I've always had an intrinsic knowledge. And then when I was reading your book, it only affirmed it. You know, about just the reality of how young we are as a people.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: You know, we as a people, as African-Americans, are very, very young. We as a people, as an African diaspora are young, comparative to, you know, you look at Japan and they talking about shit that went down very long, time, like before Jesus was even, before they even started looking for a manger, okay? okay? So we have so far to go, but we have had to go through so much in such a short amount of time in the grand scheme of things. And in that, it's been so consistently enacted by just one group. <laughs> and I just wonder if you have any theories because baby, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's been anything in study around just like, why are they so good at this? Other than because they keep practicing.
2: It's, uh,
1: well, I, I think. Is it cultural? A,
2: well, let me just first say, I, I think that there is first and foremost, the technology of warfare. Mm. So when we. Did you see I, Oppenheimer? I, I actually haven't. So I, I'm planning <laughs> <a bit>. <laughs> <laughs> to see it. Hopefully we'll see. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, some some historians, like, talk about, like, you know, the dark ages in Europe and how there was just so much war in Europe during these sort of dark and middle ages. Right. And, in you know, when there's a, a tremendous amount of war anywhere in the world, or even, you know, if people are beefing in the hood, what's going to happen is those people are going to develop Mm. better technologies to harm each other or to defend themselves.
1: Okay, okay.
2: And and so, you know, that's some people have, have have talked about. That's one of the reasons why
1: it then got turned outward.
2: Well, how in terms of the weapons of war that allowed Europeans to be able to win the extended wars that allowed them to gain control of the coast and engage in colonization, engage in human trading, that a lot of that you know came about because they spent so much time warring with each other and developing right. weapons right it was like an incubation yeah, exactly exactly and and that's not to say that there was not obviously you know different ethnic groups were were beefing in Africa too but the scale you know according to historians it, it, the scale wasn't as such and, and ironically that's why when we see all these movies about like europe pre-modern Europe, it's always about war. (laughs) It's just empire war.
1: It really is always about war. You just cracked a code for me. You just cracked a code.
2: But before they colonized, sort of left Europe, there was first an effort to colonize other parts of Europe. Like, that's why, like, you have these movies of, like, regular working-class white folks fighting against King Henry, right? Because he's trying to take over their land. Right. And, you know, the Irish fighting for liberation from the British. um, Or even the Slavs. These were the Eastern Europeans that were Mm -hmm. enslaved by the Western Europeans. And, of course, that, that war continued. And then you had, of course, but people also talk about the rise of capitalism, which, of course, emerged in Western Europe around the same time, that the transatlantic slave trade emerged. Indeed, it's sort of, you can't really separate the two. Okay.
1: For those of you watching, you saw my fingers trying to pull those two things together, and then you <laughs> said that. Like, these two, they're intertwined, right? through retirement.
3: Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy, Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: So can you speak to how capitalism is ingrained in race? Because I think folks still try to separate the two like well no capitalism is this and race is this or they'll be like racism isn't a thing anymore it's classism and I'm like no 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 it's still racism by the way just a side note I am so tired of folks trying to tell me it's not racism it's always racism It's always racism. It might have some stupidity mixed in. You might have some some, some misogyny mixed in. You know, intersectionality is very uh, real. But racism, it'd be there every time. So I would love for you to speak to just how capitalism and race need each other to continue to thrive. Because the other thing is that people, again, can only consider success within the framework of capitalism. I think much in part because that's all we've, a lot of us, been fed.
2: I mean, let's let's take the U.S. context. Like a billionaire who has spent his the better part of his
1: life—billionaire or millionaire? a
2: millionaire—a billionaire and Donald. Billionaire, Trump,
1: okay. Who, I just want to make sure spent, I heard correctly.
2: Who spent the better part of his life hyper-exploiting all different types of business owners and and, and workers and customers who were typically white. <laughs> Right, who has engaged in all sorts of harassment and assaults of white women. And, you know, you can go sort of down the list. Like, how could that person present himself to white America as a defender of white America, except for race? How could an enslaver go to non-enslaving poor whites and say, you should ally with me, <laughs> And not those people who, yes, you're an indentured servant, but those enslaved people who, who are working morning to night, just like I'm forcing you to do. How can a factory owner go to a you know a white worker who he's paying $20 an hour and say, yeah, you should be satisfied, even though your, your job is really worth $40 an hour. Why should you be satisfied? Because at least you're not getting paid $15 an hour like those Black folks. So... You know, I'm mentioning this because when you talk about the role that racist policies and racist ideas has played, it's allowed largely white capitalists to be able to divide and conquer working people, particularly convincing white folks <laughs> that they are better politically allied with the very people who are exploiting them, <laughs> as opposed to the Black folks who they have been weaponized too hard, and and so I, I just don't know if capitalism would have emerged and survived, if not for racism. And then the other thing, very quickly, is you can't like separate race from class. So like when you talk about poor people, who's disproportionately poor, like black and brown and indigenous people, who's disproportionately rich, you know, white people. What countries are disproportionately you know yep. poor? The fact that high school, white high school dropouts typically have more wealth in this country than Black college graduates. (laughs) You know, that's a function of the relationship between race and class, or that, you know, Black women who are college graduates are more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than, again, white women who are high school dropouts. So it's, people try to say, oh, it's really about, about class, as if If you're black and you rise up the class ladder, you're no longer going to be subjected to racism when some studies find (laughs) that the higher you rise on the class ladder, the more likely you are to face racism.
1: I mean, you're just going into much more concentrated pools of individuals who are much more committed to the retention of their position, which requires them to not rock with you or you have to sell your soul to them, a la Clarence. Fish face. Thomas. Yeah. He looks like a fish and he's, he's slippery, slippery like one, too.
2: And this dude has the audacity to tell black people well, we should just be working harder. You know, as if he's working. <laughs> like All he's doing is selling you know what himself. The pro-
1: you know what part of the problem is, though, in a real way? People aren't getting punched in the face no more. And that, to me, I just... People are not getting punched in the face no more. And I don't think enough people have been punched in the face to really know what that feels like. I've been punched in the face. Okay? Okay. So I have a consciousness about what that feels like. And it shapes the way that I show up in the world. And I feel like when you don't have that, you're just out here. I'm protected. Look at these crackers protecting me. I'm out here. And I'm just like... The fact that I've even had to... I've had to stop myself from picturing the fact that, like, like Clarence Thomas has had sex with Ginny. Like, that's gross to me. It is not fair to me. It's like the Kardashians. It's something I had to consider. Like, to, I, I was brought to my conscience against my own will. And I think when we look at like the ways that someone like him just gets to wield their anti-blackness just unfettered, unfettered. The irony about it. You know what the real irony about it is, Ibram? Wait, can I call you Ibram? Of course. Okay. No, because you could have been like, Dr. Kendi, please. (laughs) I would have had to snap back. Um, The real irony of it is that he doesn't even realize that it's still a situation where he has been put out front to be the one that folks are mad at and not the white people that put him there. Like, you're still a black person being used.
2: You're (laughs) still a pawn.
1: You're still a pawn.
2: I mean, no matter how many times you fly on private jets, you still don't own the jet. <laughs> and as soon as you're no longer of use to these folks, they'll find somebody else.
1: Well, that's why, you know, when we hear about this whole idea that slaves had skills that they were able to, you know, use as transferable job interviews as if Black people after this, <laughs> as if post-antebellum uh, America was like, all right, now everybody, let's let's go on and hang out together. And uh, as if there were like job placement, there was not Job Corps. After slavery was abolished, it was actually, how do we find new ways to keep these people enslaved, a.k.a. the 13th Amendment, right? And just, there's a myriad of other ways. And anyway, like,
2: when folks would, after enslavement, when they did what they can to make money and they used their money to buy land.
1: And build and up a town. They,
2: and build up a town. What happened? (laughs) You you had, in too many cases, a white mob, a racist mob, drove these folks from their town and stole their land.
1: And Uh, that's the light version. That is. That's the light version. That's not the Funk Flex dropping bombs version.
2: You know, I, I actually have been struck by, I think you've had more and more, like, powerful and even wealthy Black people today who have been reading more and more about the lynching era and have been struck by the fact that they were actually the most likely people to be lynched, <laughs> like it was mm. folks who were upwardly mobile, right? Who were got who, too big you know, for their
1: britches,
2: exactly? Who these folks were jealous about, right? Who you know who were being lynched or who had been driven from town and, and stolen it, and so that's the irony. Like you say, oh, we benefited because we received, and and I mean, it it is it it is a slap, and I can only imagine if if Frederick Douglass came back. <laughs> Right now. And he, I mean, he saw these people trying to teach children what enslavers were teaching their children
1: using AI Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Because the Prager U of it all, again, sometimes I just look around like, where, where are, where am I? I feel like I'm in a simulation, but it's not. It's the real deal, Holyfield. You know, they're not going to stop. Well, that's my, so that was my, that was actually a great point into my next question because you are a professor. You're at Princeton or Harvard?
2: I'm at BU, Boston University.
1: Oh, you're at Boston. Okay, you're at BU. Where do your students, you know, I know that there's a lot of, if you go on TikTok and you're in the wrong strain, you might feel like, do these kids know about race? Like, dude, what's happening? There was a whole section of time where they had like an interracial couple thing and they were acting out slavery. And it, it it, it it got my goat, okay? It, it it made me grab my pearls. In your coursework with your students now, where do you feel like you're seeing their consciousness around race either be shifted or do you find that it starts in one place at the beginning of, of study and ends in another place at the end of the semester? How do you feel like they're showing up?
2: Actually, I, I think when I teach my courses, I, I really try to show... The intention and design behind this structure of racism, the power, the policies, the strategy, and and I I think mm. I think students you know tend to be it's very difficult for them to
1: are we talking about white students
2: I think white students and students you know black students students mm-hmm. I, I think I think there's a different type of emotional reaction but I, I think they both are just it's just hard for them to to think like, whoa, these people actually strategized right. on how to harm these people, <laughs> on how to exclude these people, you know, on how to kill these people uh, or how to demean these people. And because I think, you know, most folks like, you know, we're we're good people, right? We, we, we just don't sit around <laughs> no tables right. trying to figure out how to like keep millions of dollars from people or like how to you know, take resources from people. And I think it's hard for for students. But once they sort of... But typically something clicks. Mm -hmm. And... Because I I, I try not to say, like, this is, like, you should just walk around thinking people are evil. Because this isn't about people being evil, people you're trying to date or somebody who's at the restaurant. Like, this is those powerful figures who created and reproduced racism... They didn't do that by happenstance, right? And so I, I think it allows them to really focus on really the power structure.
1: It like depersonalizes it?
2: Exactly. It it both depersonalizes it and personalizes it in the sense that they start we start naming names, <laughs> if if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um but they then also see, okay, you know what? It was in the interest of those enslavers to say slavery is good for Black people, because what's the alternative? Them saying it's bad? Right. <laughs> when they're making a ton of money off of it? like So then they start to see the interest, the special interest, and the then motive. they connect that. Today, oh, it's actually in the interest of if, if a potential political party today can't win elections through allowing everybody to vote, and they want to keep power, they got to suppress people's votes. Okay, now I understand why this goes down like this.
0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kiskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kiskali is right for you.
1: Why do you feel so many Black folks continue, like, and I don't mean just like people who have assigned themselves to being Republican, but but I see so many Black folks that continue to believe that Donald Trump is not racist, who continue to excise him from this system of oppression. Stephen A. Smith, who I have never considered to be kinfolk, he's just said too many Coonish statements at this point. Like his Coon card is punched all the way. He got a free MAGA hat when he got 10 punch cards, 10 punches on the Coon card. But he recently said like, Donald Trump is not racist. Like I, you know, have known him and he's just a guy that cares only about his own power. And I felt like that was a disassociation that maybe he's made in his mind, but I've seen a lot of other people say that. He just has a big enough platform to say that. What do you think people are missing in coming to that assessment when they look at someone like him?
2: Well, I think this is just representative of of a larger problem that I try to just challenge in my work. Like, in my work, I push back against the idea that there's a such thing as someone who's not racist.
1: Talk about it.
2: We're we're, we're either being racist or anti-racist. So the question is, if you're saying that, you know, if you don't think Donald Trump is racist? Then that means you believe he's anti-racist. <laughs> and, and what has he
1: demonstrated? Is that what you, <laughs> exactly. is that where we're
2: going? <laughs> exactly. And so, if he's not anti-racist, then that means he's racist. Either he's conserving or trying to destroy this this structure of racism. And I don't see any way in which he's trying to destroy it, challenge it. And and so, I think I think part of this is because of how people define. Like they have this idea. That like being racist is like a light switch. It's either on or off, right? And and yeah,
1: yeah. And yeah. that's
2: just not how it. That's not how it is. Like, but then you also have the folks who you know, like Stevens' conception that he's just about his power. What that means is he doesn't. He would then have to say, you know what? It's really just those people who are just hateful. It's not the people who. Like, they may love Black people, but at the same time, if instituting a policy that harms Black people is beneficial for them maintaining their power, they're going to do it, <laughs> right? And that person is racist, too. It's it's not really about, you know, what's in person's heart or whether they hate. I mean, these things are, are irrelevant, and I think they're a distraction. And when we focus on the rhetoric, when we focus on the policies, that's where we
1: can see whether
2: someone's being racist or anti-racist.
1: You just—that was a truth translation, my friend. (laughs) That was a truth translation. But think about, like, man, if
2: we—if people can't understand how Donald Trump is being racist, I mean, then we're
1: lost. Well, baby, we are. Like, Dr. Henny, we are—we are lost. We have been really wooed by a lot of flashy, shiny things that people felt were valuable more than their identities, right? That people felt were valuable more than community, right? Access became far more, access to whiteness for many people became far more valuable than protection of blackness. And then it becomes like, well, what is blackness? What are we protecting? So when I see people say things like, well, we shouldn't even be calling ourselves black because that's something they gave to us. You as a historian, can you give us some context on what that really means.
2: Well, first, I mean, so the term black and us identifying ourselves as black, actually we gave that to ourselves. So, you know, that was that came out of the black power movement that was people like Malcolm X and and Stokely Carmichael and and Angela Davis and others saying, "No, we're not a ne- we're not negroes. We're not colored. We're black and we're not just black, we're beautiful." And and we're not just beautiful, we should determine you know, the course of our lives and our own destiny. So the, the term Black, and even the term African-American, like that was a term promoted by Jesse Jackson and others. So right. these are terms we largely gave ourselves. And, and so I, I just, I mean, it's just like factually incorrect when, when you know, when, when people say that. But at the same time, the idea, like we talked about earlier, the idea that all these different ethnic groups, different cultures and language are like one people, one race, Yes, that is something that was given to us. Yeah. (laughs) That was something that was thrust upon us. Yeah. And what we did, we created solidarity out of it. So, you know, for the last 500 years, you had, ever since we were thrust, you know, into the Middle Passage and started to see that we were each being harmed because we were Black. Yeah. Yeah it allowed us to have each other's back, which is
1: why things like what went down in Montgomery <laughs> happens, right? Fade in the water. How beautiful was that? Where were you when you saw the footage of the fade in the water, the Alabama sweet tea party, <laughs> the Montgomery brawl? <laughs> I was in Boston.
2: I think. I, but like, and where I was... were
1: you? Were you in a car? Were you on the train? Were you in your office? Did you find it yourself? Or did someone rush in and say, Dr. Candy, Dr. Candy, you got to see! I it's happening. I, it.
2: I think I was writing and I saw it and it messed it. Like I couldn't you stop You were like procrastinating? Because I, <laughs> I had to like see all the angles and see all the different videos and see all the different or oh, the chair that was used. The chair. And I was trying to look to see where like where his hat landed. Um,
1: <laughs> like how did Scuba Gooding Jr. get in the water? Like. He had to swim a distance. I remember when I, when I finally saw the angle of where he jumped from, I'm like, oh, young, young blood was really swimming. And also, Black people can swim.
2: But what's interesting is I know that many, many Black people watching that film at some time in their life, when they were with a group of Black folks and some racist white folks stepped to them, or they saw a Black person or Black woman or Black man or Black child being harassed, that, you know, they either stepped up or saw people stepping up or felt the need to step up. And and I think that's one of the reasons why, like, it's so resonated with people. Like, you know, this—because many people have done that and experienced that and defended their people, you know, from racist terror. And we've been doing that for hundreds of years.
1: I end every uh, live show and every episode of my radio show with the phrase, we are each other's business. When we look out for each other, we lift each other up. And this came out of a scenario where I was at the All-Star Game in 2018, and this cop was just posted up on the corner in North Carolina. Just any Black person that would walk by, he would harass in some shape, way, or form. He'd either, in my case, he tried to, like, block my path, and I skirted around him, shot him a side eye and kept him moving. And on my way back, I saw a brother and his girl walking in front of me and he like was like, come here, come here. And, you know, there was no reason for him to ask him to come here. Like, we're walking on a sidewalk, right? And uh, he said, come here, come here. And the brother was like, no, nah, I'm good, I'm good. And he said, I, I said for you to come here and now I'm walking up and I was like, he doesn't need to come here. You have no need to ask him anything. And he looked shocked that someone had said something. And so he like actually just backed off. But the sister, uh, the brother said to me, you know, thank you for that. And I was like, no problem. And the sister said, he's He's none of your business. business. (laughs) And I was like, he is my business. I said, so are you. I said, all of us are each other's business. And that's where that phrase came out of because I just feel like there's a beacon in me that's like, if I see folks bothering black folks, Like my green beret comes out and it's like, what are we, what are we doing? I also know I'm light skinned, so I might get away with a little more, you know, so I I need to push the envelope a little more. But when we are now coming up on another election and I think that this is one of the most, this is going to be a very surreal experience, I think, for a lot of us, because we have never seen an election where in my lifetime where racism was weaponized in such a. Outward fashion, would you agree? Like Reagan and those, that era, like they were racist as hell, but it was like you had to know what you were looking at.
2: Yeah. I, th- I think probably the only comparison would be Obama's first run and Nixon's in 68 when he ran his whole campaign on law and order and basically going after black power. Mm. But I mean, I wasn't I alive think yet. In those two cases, there were other issues. Yeah. That we're animating voters and like particularly Republican voters. I just don't like that's going to be the principal issue that is going to likely animate voters that somehow, some way this Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, whoever it is, are, quote, defending white America. Yes.
1: (laughs) Even Nikki Haley keeps saying we don't want a Kamala Harris presidency. And it's like, bitch, what you're trying to say is Nimarada. What you're trying to say is, because I, I don't even know why I gave her the respect of calling her her fake white name. Her name is Nimarada, okay? And what she's trying to say is, well, we can't have a black woman in the White House. We just, we we must do all and everything we can in our power. And it's like, oh, okay, you're also an Indian second-generation immigrant, which is between her and the Vivek mofo who was over here spitting Eminem at a rally and I just, I I hope to all the Detroitian gods that Eminem comes for his neck. We know he has the lyrics. Uh, um, I know it, I know it. I mean, I'm, I'm very, when we talk about being lost, I'm very concerned that we will not wake up by then. And that's why I want people like you on this podcast. That's why I want, like, I think sometimes the conversation becomes like, well, we're just talking. What's the solution? There has to actually be talking to get to a solution. Oh yeah. You know, that's why I let go of my therapist this week because he want to not he don't want to talk to get to the solution. He just want <laughs> to land at the solution. And I'm like, "Brother, we got to talk to get there. You know, we got to toss ideas around, we got to throw shit against the wall. We got to And we don't get to do that like we used to because everyone, not everyone, but there's this there's this fear of being wrong on the course to being right, right? So even in philosophizing, even in trying to draw ideas together and do critical thinking. Like, people are are also afraid to look stupid. Like, I recently just came into the knowledge of, like, the full concept of the Reconstruction. Either I wasn't paying attention, or it really wasn't a big part of, like, my African American Studies master's, right? It wasn't a big part of my African American Studies undergrad. Like, it just was, like, this thing that was kind of mentioned, and it's by design, right? Yeah. And so now that I have become a lot more, like, understanding of it, some the other day was like, so she's supposed to be a scholar, but she didn't know about the Reconstruction. And it's like, thankfully, I'm confident enough to say, no, no I, I didn't. didn't. You know, and there's so much of us to know about. And there's so much that has been hidden <laughs> that there are going to be, you know, pockets that we are unearthing right now, right?
2: And I think what really, what truly makes someone a scholar, what truly makes someone an intellectual, to me, is not what they know, but how much of a desire they have to know, to learn. And so I, it is just striking to me that, like, someone would say that to you or to anyone. Like, I learned something and almost (laughs) see that as a bad thing. Like, I mean,
1: how... But but that's... That's where we are. Yeah. But that's where we are. You know, that's why like even just conversing in the pursuit of knowledge is a radical demonstration at this point because the norm has really started to become that I need to be owning of my ignorance. Like that's a thing. Like people are like confident in their ignorance. Why I need to know that. I don't know that. What's wrong with me not knowing that? And it's like, well, there's nothing wrong, but like how dope is it now that you do know?
2: Yeah. And how many people can't control you now because of your ignorance? I don't think people fully understand how much we are controlled by our ignorance.
1: What you don't know can hurt you.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, the people have some questions for you because I told them we're going to have Dr. Mex Candy on the show and I want you to prepare proper questions. Don't come in here with no loose shit, okay? We are in class. Get the syllabus, get your act together, okay? And get focused. So if y'all want to see and y'all want to hear the brilliance to continue, then you know what to do. Head on over to the amandaverse.com because the SEAL squad is about to go up. It's a lot of knowledge that's elevating right now. We'll see you there. The last dose Dr. Candy, this has been such a honor. And I really appreciate you giving us your time and sharing your infinite, seemingly infinite knowledge uh, with us. And if you all have not read the books, I mean, if you're watching right now, you already see anytime we have a specific, like anytime we have professors, they'd be like, Are you I gonna see, see these books. Um <laughs> Every professor, this is their back wall. Books. And uh, what is the latest and greatest that people need to be looking out for? To my understanding, it's not even a book.
2: No, so stamp from the Beginning is, it's been remade into a film.
1: Is it a documentary or is it a film?
2: It is primarily documentary, but it has some scripted
1: elements to it. That's weird because I don't remember getting... An offer to be a part of it. So that's weird that it's happening because I didn't. I don't know. Maybe it went to my spam. I noticed some light-skinned folks in there somewhere, but I'm 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 gonna hit up my agent and find out because I'm sure that's what happened. It probably went to spam. <laughs> it probably went to spam. Yeah.
2: I don't know. You know, maybe you know you you so big time. You probably you know turned us down. So you know.
1: He hit me with the you big time. That's why I know I know you went to fam. I'm surprised you ain't saying, you know you Hollywood. <laughs> no, I'm really looking forward to it. And we have to make content like this. There's got to be other outlets for the education to happen. And it has to be priority and it's got to be relentless because we have to fight fire with fire and they are relentless in the silence. Definitely. So I appreciate you once again. And... Thank you for your service.
2: Thank you, Amanda, for for always keeping it real with the folks.
1: Always.